Of Death and Window Wells There must be something about the fall that prompts birds to fly into our windows. Perhaps it's the lengthening rays and shortening days as the setting sun inches south across the horizon at the edge of the prairie. Perhaps the small birds see the sandhill cranes heading south, with their spindly legs floating behind them, or hear the flocks of gathering geese. Maybe the migrant birds are distracted by the unsettling thoughts of a harrowing migration, while the year-round residents feel a growing anxiety as they anticipate a brutal winter. Whatever the reason, about once a week I hear the sickening thud as a bird collides with the window. One night my husband and I were both startled by a deep and full-bodied thud and knew that it must be an owl. There on the back patio was a short-eared owl, and in its mouth was a dead vole. We mourned not only for the owl, but also the collateral damage to the hungry owlets mewling in an abandoned nest. Often the birds will fall into the window well in front of my office, and I only spot them when I'm changing sheets in the basement guest room. Sometimes a diminutive skeleton is all that remains. If the birds hit the front door, they drop down onto the steps in full view. Yesterday, I spotted a small warbler as I stepped outside to greet arriving guests. I quickly stooped over to pick up the bird by its brittle toes and discreetly tossed it into the adjacent bush before the guests reached the door. If I had the luxury of time, I would have walked across the lawn and tossed the bird into the prairie, where it would have been promptly recycled by coyotes, owls, or hawks. The ornithologist John James Audubon studied and painted birds either from stuffed birds or their skins. I can imagine myself remotely following in his footsteps as I tenderly handle a brown creeper, a small bird that spirals up a tree trunk probing for insects, then flutters down and starts up again. I rarely see the creeper on my birdwatching walks. Its high wispy song is difficult to hear in the blowing wind and rustling leaves and its mottled earth tones provide a perfect camouflage against the tree. Now on my front steps I can study one in detail. I notice the stiff tail that it uses to prop itself up against the tree, and its sharp decurved beak exquisitely designed for prying insects from the furrowed bark. The bird is tiny, weighing no more than a couple of pennies, and I marvel that this year-round bird can withstand wild winds with rain, sleet, or snow. But the bird is resolutely dead, and lacks the sprightliness and determination that I have seen in vivo. I have been fortunate to participate at bird banding stations, where we actually hold live birds in our hands. Birds become entangled in the fine netting stretched between trees in the dense underbrush. I then extract the birds, place them in muslin bags, and return to the processing station, where I hold their necks gently between my first and second fingers as I weigh them blow on their abdomens and armpits to assess the fat reserves. The birds waiting to be banded must be kept warm, so I put the muslin bags inside my fleece jacket. It is an odd sensation to feel a fluttering bird against my beating heart. The final step is to put a tiny number band on their leg in the seemingly far-fetched hope that some other remote banding station will catch the same bird and track its movement. I particularly remember a blue-winged warbler netted as it wended its way northward from Central America. Before releasing it, I slipped its fragile legs between my fingers and held it up so others could take pictures of the stunning yellow warbler with vaguely blue wings. 
Far more characteristic is a dark black streak through its eyes, looking like a hastily applied smear of mascara. I patted the blue-winged warbler's head in a comforting way, but then was dismayed by his accusatory stare. His sparkling and fierce eyes seemed to say, I have made it this far on this fucking migration, and I'm not about to let some fucking misdent stop me on my way to Canada. So stop patronizing me with your petting, and get your fucking hands off of me and let me go. This is the spirit that is extinguished by our windows, and also the spirit that Audubon was never able to capture in his prints. The thudding birds create a very confusing psychologic dilemma. My husband and I consider ourselves environmentally sensitive. We only use organic fertilizer, try to eat local, have replaced all appliances with energy-efficient upgrades, have a little plaque at the driveway entrance announcing that we have successfully participated in a conservation at home project, only turn on the air conditioner when unprovoked sweat actually drips onto the keyboard, tried, mostly unsuccessfully, to limit ourselves to one tank of gasoline per month and exult in our energy bill that shows that we are the most energy efficient of our neighbors. But each deadly smack is a clear auditory message that no matter how well-meaning our efforts, we are intruders, that our house and windows are oversized for our needs, and that we have indirectly caused the death of an innocent bird. There does not seem to be much I can do. Wrapping our house in protective netting or standing in front waving semaphore flags is not feasible. Decorating the windows with paste-on images of scary raptors might be an effective deterrent, but one that would impede our panoramic view of the prairie. This is a selfish concession that I am unwilling to make. Struggling to find solid footing, I pause to consider that while violent death is poignantly tragic in human terms, it is a way of life for many birds. In the spring, I see a proud goose leading a dozen goslings across the pond. The next day, there might be only ten, and the next day perhaps eight, and I shudder at the agony the baby must feel as he dips his web foot into the water, only to have it snatched from below as a rapacious snapping turtle drags him to a watery death. We routinely see coyotes roam the field, pounce on a hapless vole, toss it in the air, and then swallow it in one gulp. Hovering hawks swoop down, lunging with outstretched talons, and then carry the squirming voles into the oak tree in the side yard. We rush out with binoculars to watch as the hawk shreds the vole into edible morsels. I try to convince myself that my introduction of a violent death by window pane is just another in the menu of nature's options, but it's a tough sell. My remorse is deepened when I stand aside from the rough and tumble of nature and position myself a steward, a guardian angel for vulnerable creatures. When our dog captured a vole, I dropped the leash, ran to his side, and began to tug at the vole's protruding head, while the dog struggled to swallow it whole. While I was eager to witness a hawk shredding a vole, I was determined to save this one from our dog, even though our dog was really just asserting his ancestry as a hunter. I was so consumed with my tussle, I didn't realize that I was close to yanking the bull's head right off. I let go just in time and relinquished the prey to a quick death. My identity as a steward fully emerges when a bird flies into the window and doesn't die, but lies fluttering and agonal on the steps. Perhaps I can reconcile a quick death, but not a lingering one. I was sitting at my desk last week when I noticed an approaching great blue heron and thought, wow, he's getting close, and then suddenly, bam, 
He smacked into the window and dropped like a rock into the window well. I crept down in the basement to take a closer look, guiltily hoping that the heron had died. What was I going to do with an injured heron in my window well? I was now at eye level with the heron, and we stared directly at each other through the window. I recognized the same defiant and bright-eyed look that I had seen in my little blue-winged warbler. It seemed improbable that he could ever escape the window well on his own. It was too narrow for him to spread his wings, and his wings might have been broken anyway. The well looked far too deep for him to simply hop out and then perhaps stagger out to some lonely death in the brush. Our daughter Frances called the bird rescue hotline, and their very sobering advice was to only approach the trap bird wearing goggles and a helmet. They like to go for the eyes, they said. I frequently see great blue herons standing mannequin still at the edge of a pond, patiently waiting for the moment to strike with their formidable bills. I could easily envision a heron going for the soft human eyeball, and then once extracted, tilting its head and swallowing it whole like a raw oyster. I considered fashioning a ramp out of an old door, and wondered if a heron could grok a ladder and hop out step by step. I tried to imagine some sort of sling-like contraption that could gently lift the heron out, but I also knew that it would probably thrash about and hurt itself in the process. Without a sedating dart gun, wild animals have the frustrating habit of confusing the tender ministrations of a steward with a more lethal agenda. This all happened on a Saturday night, and the bird rescue people said that nobody would be available until Monday. I considered a temporizing strategy of feeding frogs to the heron. A heavy rain forces frogs into our sump pump system, and somehow they end up in our basement, though how they get from the utility room into the guest bedroom is a complete mystery. My sister-in-law was once startled from her pleasant respite on the porcelain throne by a nonchalant frog hopping by. My cousin Edie put her suitcase down in the basement guest room and several days later was saddened to discover she had inadvertently crushed a frog. Once I reached into a basket of yarn and found a mummified frog, who was probably initially thrilled to find such a soft landing spot, and then desperate as he became fatally entangled in the fine wool. We don't routinely use our basement, so I thought if I scoured around I could possibly find a few frogs left over from the previous rain but promptly fell into another psychological quagmire. After a previous deluge, I had asked my nephew to hop into the window well and extract a bevy of frogs that had washed in there. We set them free in the lawn and congratulated ourselves on our compassion. Now, responding to the sleek elegance of the heron and his elevated status on the food chain, I would have taken those same glistening frogs and tossed them back into the window well as food for the heron. My benevolent stewardship had suddenly turned me into a cruel puppet master, a lonely-at-the-top type of experience. Francis, a part-time resident unused to thudding birds, became more anxious as the hours ticked by. I joined her. And then, mercifully, the heron saved us from our agonies. Suddenly he jumped up to the ledge of the window well, paused briefly to gain his bearings, and then gracefully flapped across the lawn towards the prairie and the stretch of open water beyond. I went into the kitchen, filled the vase with rainforest-certified roses, pulled the cage-free eggs from the fridge, and started to dice up the organic cucumbers from our garden. Life was simple again. <laughs>